podcast in the galaxy. Welcome back to the Elise Yeezy Show. I am your host, Elise Yeezy, and today I'm joined by surgical doctor, TikToker, YouTuber, Karen Raj. Hello, thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for doing the charity work and coming down <laughs> to my podcast. Thank you so much for being here. So, where to begin? I first saw your content actually through Facebook, which is one of my yeah. least favorite social medias, just above, just above Twitter. Um, a few of your videos kept popping up, and then I was noticing on other socials, and mm. then... I think you did a video where you ate a kiwi with the skin on. Oh, yeah. And I was like, times. that is my dude. Because I do that too. And people think it's weird, but it's convenient, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the science behind it, apart from, you know, these glorious ASMR sounds you get from, you know, crunching into a kiwi, most fruits, and nature's pretty clever, uh, most fruits, the skin has insoluble fiber, mm -hmm. which acts like a rake to sweep your intestines of all the poo in there. And the flesh contains soluble fiber, which makes everything softer and easier to, you know, deal with basically. So if you eat a kiwi with the skin on, you get both insoluble and soluble fiber, which is ideal. Mm -hmm. uh, and I quite like the taste of the kiwi skin. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't taste or anything. It adds an interesting texture. Yeah. And I tell people this, that most of the fiber in fruit is within the skin. Yeah. Like you eat an apple with the skin on generally. So I just knew when I saw that, that I had to, <laughs> I had to email you to invite you on podcast. So thank you for coming down. You've done really well. Not to sound condescending or patronizing. <laughs> oh, it's so hard for me to be like genuinely nice because it just sounds yeah, so yeah. severe. It does, me. yeah. It does. But I do mean it because you've got five point what six million followers on TikTok. Your other socials are doing really well. You've been doing YouTube or social media for about 10 years, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing with social media is I never planned any of this mm. and nothing is truly predictable, you know, unless you've got a huge team behind you pumping in, you know, all this content to you to do. But being a one-man band, all of this, I just started it. And it's a combination of luck, doing things at the right time, catching on to the right trends at the right time. And, you know, I gained, you know, a decent success across various platforms and repeating that same formula. So nothing was planned. And yeah, I've been, people often say to me, oh, how did you blow up on social media? But actually... I think the misconception is blowing up. Like, yes, I gained some traction on TikTok just over a couple of years, but my overnight success is 10 years in the making. Yeah. Like I started YouTube in 2012 and the lessons I learned from making video content, improving my diction, screen presence, production value, all of these things I've been doing for 10 years. And then it's only in the last couple of years that somehow paid dividends on TikTok. And then I replicated it to other short form platforms. So 10 years worth of grind for a couple of years success. And why did you initially want to do social media and do these educational, inf not informal, informational mm. um, videos? Like what was the drive initially? Um, so I started YouTube when I was a fourth year medical student. Mm -hmm. And this is back in the Wild West days of YouTube when anything goes, basically. That was so good back then. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was revising. Well, I, actually, I just completed these medical school examinations called OSCEs where you essentially have to examine a patient and then you get tested on if you've done the right things. Have you checked their blood pressure? Have you examined the right areas? Have you listened with your stethoscope in the right areas of their chest? So these are kind of tick box things. You examine a simulated patient who's just a normal or an actor paid to be a patient and then you get marked on how well you, you've done that. Now, 
I thought, actually, there are no videos teaching medical students or not many videos teaching medical students how to do those kind of examinations. So me with a couple of mates, we thought, let's do this. We gained a little bit of a cult following. Mm. And then weirdly enough, I found that some of my medical education videos, like me being a doctor and examining a patient, found some like weird cultish fame in ASMR playlists. Oh, really? They love that, like a doctor examining a patient or like doing a neurological exam on a patient. And then I realized this whole world of ASMR was a thing and they love kind of like doctor, patient, nurse type stuff. It's really <laughs> weird. It was like fetishizing the medical field. Yeah, that's anyway. what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> ASMR is a little bit like that though, you know, especially if it's um usually a female, like whispering and so yeah. there is like there can be. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I like the, it, there's one ASMR content that I like and that's the soap cutting. Have oh you, yeah. Have you seen yeah, those yeah, on TikTok? Yeah. Just like so the way satisfying, it, yeah. It's really satisfying the way it falls and sort of like crackles under the ground. Yeah. I, <laughs> but the other stuff is a bit, um, I think it's a little bit sexual, the other stuff. You know? Yeah, I, I like mainly the sounds, like, you know, bacon frying in a pan, like or like rain pattering against a window. These kind of like sounds, I like it. The mm. the people whispering, that just gives me creepy feelings. I don't like that at all. <laughs> Makes you shudder a bit. Yeah. So over the course of a decade, how have you found that your content has changed? Because the social media landscape has changed so much. I mean, like we were saying, the Wild West yeah. of YouTube back then and now you've got tiktok and it's more kind of tiktok there's like this um what's it what's it called instant gratification mm. you know because i mean i found that and i've only got like three thousand followers on tiktok so i only started recently but a few videos just go viral yeah so how like has your ch content changed to reflect that because you mainly focus on tiktok right yeah, mainly focused on TikTok. And I think down the line, I'd want to, you know, write books, make podcasts, stuff mm -hmm. like that, and focus on longer form content on YouTube. That's kind of like the longer term aim. But my content has just naturally evolved. And I think that natural evolution is probably because of the appetite of the audience for various things. When I first started making YouTube videos, that was for healthcare professionals, targeting medical students, junior doctors, nurses, physios. So, you know, mainly a specific niche of people. So it limited the audience. But actually, over time, I realized I don't just want to be targeting healthcare professionals. I want to be targeting the layperson and actually encouraging the layperson to take a greater ownership of their own health. Mm -hmm. And that came to a fore during the pandemic when there was, you know, misinformation left, right and center. And I thought, you know what, it's a good idea just to clear some of the misinformation and people like that. And actually my own twist on that was not just giving someone facts, but actually doing it in an entertaining way. And that became one of my things like provide value, but entertainment as well, this kind of edutainment, yeah. as they like to say. And that went down well, the combination of those two things. And people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. You need to hook people in. That's the thing with TikTok. First two seconds, what are you going to do? So that dictates a lot of people's contents, although I try not to let it. Um, and yeah, it just comes shorter and more snappy and more to the point. People don't like to be baited into watching 20 minutes of stuff. They want it immediately. How did you, how did you find your content over the pandemic? Cause I noticed on YouTube, my views definitely went up when we had the lockdowns and people were mm. staying indoors. Did you notice that your content went through the roof? Because you know, you're out there, you're a medical professional talking about vaccines, health, etc. Did you find that there was like a steep incline? Yeah, I mean, if you, during the height of the pandemic, if you spoke about masks, social distancing, vaccines, COVID, more often than not, that would be more 
you know, engaging with people because people want to comment either way, either saying, you know, you're a sellout, you're a pharmaceutical shill, you know, verbatim, or that amazing, thank you, you've actually now convinced me to get the vaccine because you've explained mm -hmm. how the side effects are minimal and actually it's more important, blah, blah, blah. So, it, you know, when you're making any piece of content, you don't just want to be in an echo chamber where you're just appealing to a certain type of audience. For the maximum reach, you want people who are neutral and who are just watching and are interested. You want people who agree with your opinion and you want people who disagree. So you have the chance of changing the mindset of those people who disagree. And even if they don't agree with you and they want to spout hatred, that hatred will boost your engagement anyway. So that's how I see it. So when I was making content about the vaccines, which I agreed with, not mm -hmm. doing it for views, I would thought, you know what? Great. I, I want to, you know, reach these people who are so against vaccines and COVID because they're so caught up in conspiracies. So let it go out to this group as well. Let it be shared amongst conspiracy theories, uh, theorist groups and things like that. So I thought, you know, go for it. Did you find there was a lot of engagement with those types of groups of people? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the type of content that I would make pertaining to vaccines, COVID and lockdown, mm -hmm. it would all be based in science and it's not opinion based, it would be fact based. So it's very hard for someone to argue against a fact based piece of information. Yeah. You know, opinions are not facts. And facts are not opinions. That's yeah. what I constantly tell people. And I remind myself as well, mm. even though it might sound like it's my opinion, like it's not, it's just facts. I'm giving you the numbers, the stats, the data, uh, and what I'm seeing day to day in hospital as well, the burden of COVID, et cetera. So, you know, actually a lot of messages I got across those years, like, you know, even from hardcore conspiracy theorists who would follow me for other content I would do, they'd be like, you know what? I respect you. I don't agree with your conspiracy. I don't agree with your conspiracy theories and I don't agree with your COVID stuff, but I respect you. And, you know, I think that is a fair line to draw. You know, you can't convince everyone, yeah. but at least if they have the respect, that fine, you know, you do that, uh, which is all you can ask for, really. Humans, we're very emotionally driven. We're not these like pure logical beings, because mm. otherwise we'd be androids. Um, do you find, even though we know and I know, okay, facts are facts, opinions, opinions. But when it's subjects that there is emotion attached to, do you, do you find it hard to stick with the facts sometimes? Like tell your brain to? Because sometimes I do. Like I can mm. be emotionally driven about certain subjects, like, I don't know, UFOs. But. Yeah. Um, it's tricky because yeah. when I'm making content on social media, the unfortunate reality where I find myself in is I'm a doctor affiliated with the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK. So almost whatever I do, I'm a doctor with the NHS and representing the NHS 24-7. Yeah. So if I go on a stag do with my mates and get drunk, I can't then do something silly or stupid mm -hmm. because I'm still a doctor. I d even though I hang up my stethoscope or hang up my scrubs at the end of the day, I'm still a doctor and people see me as that. And if I do something untoward or which could, you know, quote unquote from the GMC, bring the profession into disrepute, that looks bad on me, the NHS, the healthcare service, that this kind of, this is the type of doctor that represents your service. So even when I'm responding to trolls, making videos, yeah, the natural instinct is to be like, you know, I want to tell you my opinion, but I have to hold myself back and actually be like, you know, I can't because at the end of the day, someone can easily just take that the wrong way, complain, and, you know, it could go, it could end badly and for me and also just looks badly as a doctor 
almost bringing his personal biases mm-hmm. into content, which then I think erodes your trust with people that actually you're very biased and you're bringing your personal feelings into it. And actually as a doctor, you know, one of the things you need to do, which is actually almost be emotionally detached from certain, you know, facts and information. Emotion's a big part of being a doctor and being empathetic, etc. But when certain decision making and when you're providing knowledge, you need to be detached from that. You need to have that cognitive dissonance sometimes. Yeah, you need to. Like if I'm breaking news about cancer to someone, which, you know, mm. often is more, which I do pretty often in my job. Uh, if I break down every time I'm delivering a cancer news, how much confidence does that fill the patient with? Like if the doctor's crying, how am I going to feel? Or you know, have they lost confidence in the treatment plan or whatever? So, you know, there needs to be a certain level of emotional regulation in anything I do. And I think even with, social media content needs to be the same is that a hard pressure to live up with this idea that you're part of the system the nhs and you don't have a nine to five you don't clock in or clock out even when you're off hours you're still representing because that mindset always feels to me like a tiny bit dehumanizing just just purely Mm. your example of if you went on a stag do you couldn't post something to like social media that could you know bring down the whatnot of the NHS and that to me it just feels like a little bit dehumanizing because you're a human and you're going to have these experiences where you go on a stag do or you have like a little boozy weekend well I don't know do you drink alcohol yeah 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 I don't drink alcohol (laughs) but you're gonna have a little little boozy weekend you know and sometimes these things might happen is that not hard pressure to live up with yeah I mean I've never been one to drink loads and you know get absolutely steaming drunk anyway Mm -hmm. and over the pandemic I've barely drunk I've probably had one drink in three years now. Good. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm really I'm really pro that. Do you, sorry, not to interrupt, but do you uh, listen to a neuroscientist called Andrew Huberman? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I listen to his. I've been sober T-title for three years and he had a podcast about alcohol. And if you intake regularly 10 grams of alcohol regularly, yeah. it increases your cancer risk from like four to 15 or something percent. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, bloody hell. I mean, I mean, I don't know about the specific percentages, but certainly, you know, there's no denying that alcohol is a toxin. Um, You know, I see patients with uh, liver disease, liver cirrhosis, liver cancer because of excess alcohol drinking. Not only that, but things like pancreatitis, you know, all these kind of things which can happen with alcohol. So, you know, I think it is a toxin Uh, when it's metabolized in the body. It gets converted to a toxin, which is 30 times more potent than alcohol itself, acetaldehyde. So there's nothing really good about alcohol. Um, But and that's one of the reasons why I've kind of toned down and barely drink anymore. Um, But having said that, in terms of the dehumanizing aspect Mm -hmm. of what you can and can't do as a doctor, you know, I think there's an element of is it wrong for a doctor to be in a pair of speedos or a bikini and be drinking cocktails no because we you know doctors can still have lives mm-hmm. but i think actually when you sign up to be a doctor to be a healthcare worker you sign away certain privileges mm-hmm. you know and i'm not being controversial here you can't then post a video of you being drunk, vomiting all over public streets, and then that is your doctor, that is your nurse. I think that's a little bit weird. If you do that, and in your own, you know, and it's not on social media, fine, whatever. You know, no one on the street knows you're a doctor. But then, for me, on social media, if I've reached a certain notoriety, where, you know, people know who I am on social media, and then if I'm on the street and doing all sorts of things, I just think I, I would feel bad. It just looks wrong. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I, I, it does dehumanize the whole aspect a little bit and you're constrained in what you can and can't do. But I think that is the price you pay for the job you do. And you, you sign up to that when you start. Yeah. And and I agree because if I had a doctor and I saw, would it color my opinion of them a little bit if I saw them vomiting in the streets? Uh, it, it's weird. For me, it's a bit conflicting because there's a part of me that, I guess, would you say is libertarian? Like, you know, you have the liberty to do what you want to your body, mm. blah, 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 do what you want. Um, there's no real rules to everything is yeah. chaos, whatever. And then there's another part of me that's like the kind of sneery, because um, I've not been preachy about the yeah, yeah, yeah. the um, the sobriety. I've not been preachy about it for years until recently I've been hearing this data and literature from Andrew Huberman about how bad alcohol really is for your body in ways that I don't think the great British public are educated that much like yeah we know it's a carcinogen yeah we know that it can cause some cancers but do you do you really know all the information about it? no not really because it's glamorized and glorified so there's this bit of me that's a bit like yeah i would look down that person if they were vomiting in the streets even though that was probably me seven years yeah. ago or whatever um it's interesting i think you know i think uh when we look at data with any you know carcinogen the list of carcinogens like for example aloe vera is a carcinogen you know, is someone who loves uh, aloe vera juice going to stop drinking it? Probably not. But, you know, the, you know, pretty much everything you can think of can be a carcinogen to some extent. You know, there's all sorts of things. I mean, the sun is a carcinogen. Yeah. You know, UV light. We don't stop going in the sun. Um, even with alcohol, I think all things in moderation. If a, if a person who works out, you know, does breathing work, has great sleep, exercises, has lots of fiber, has the odd bit of alcohol here and there. Are they going to be better off than someone who's teetotal and also does similar things? I don't think you'd see huge difference mm -hmm. in their lifestyles. It's only, I think, in moderate to excess alcohol intake, you'd see significant discrepancies. But if someone's teetotal, great, fine. That That is a great lifestyle to have. And I think also in terms of looking down on someone or what you'd perceive a doctor to be good or bad based on their habits? I think yes. For example, a lot of my colleagues smoke, you know, a doctor smoking. That's insane. Uh, less doctors smoke now than probably back in the 60s and 70s. But if I see a doctor smoking as a patient, I would have, you know, thoughts in my head of like, they're telling me one thing, but doing another thing, you know, <clears throat> It, it doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. But there's so many different things which are taboo or perceived to be taboos, which are not truly taboos. For example, if my doctor or my surgeon had loads of tattoos, I wouldn't care. Yeah. That would make a difference. But to a lot of people, they would be affected, especially like an older demographic who are from a different genre, a different era, would be like, I don't want my surgeon to have tattoos because they would connotate you know, the, the tattoos would have different connotations. They would mm. think tattoos means rebellious or slightly kind of unusual, unique, and there'd be kind of, you know, different kind of mindset. But actually, they're just, it's an accepted thing nowadays. But I think things which actually impact health and a doctor is doing willingly doesn't portray the same image. Not that I'm saying that all doctors have to be teetotal, but like we said before, you know, doctors doing things which can come across odd on social media, either kind of being racist, for example, or, you know, being sexist or chauvinistic or having really backward views on women, misogynistic views potentially, or, you know, getting drunk and then encouraging drinking and vomiting on social media. All of these things, I think, would again undermine the public's trust 
and mm. opinions of healthcare professionals. Oh, especially if it was any one of the isms, as in like um, oh, yeah. know, transphobia, racism, yeah. sexism, because if someone's displaying that online and they're in the healthcare profession, yeah. how do you know that they're not going to give like a biased treatment Absolutely. to someone who's a different skin 100%. color or... Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I actually do have, <laughs> I had two thoughts, my ADHD, honestly. No, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this in order, actually. Being an NHS surgical doctor, it is well known in this country that the NHS is underfunded and the majority of the staff, I would say, I'm not in the NHS, but from what I've seen is overworked, overstressed, underpaid. There is a solidarity with the British public and healthcare professionals when it comes to things like during the lockdowns, we had the symbolic clap for carers and sure that was a nice moment, but it's just symbolic. Um, how is, because of the job you do, how is your sleep and health? you know, in relation to your job, wouldn't it be better to receive better pay than a few claps? Yeah, I mean, you know, being very uh, diplomatic here, I, sure. I I didn't feel strongly about the claps either way. Mm -hmm. I was like, great, it's a nice gesture, fine. I would rather, like you said, get free parking instead of a clap uh, or get subsidised meals on the NHS or free meals mm -hmm. in the NHS or, I don't know, something more tangible than a clap. But I understand, I mean, it's not the public's duty to provide me with anything. It's the duty of the NHS, the system to provide all of that. But I think, again, looking at it and playing, playing devil's advocate to myself, if the NHS provided free parking to all the NHS staff, they would go bankrupt the next day. Because, you know, I pay £30 a month for parking. That £30 a month was rolled over to, I don't know, a million people. You know, that's crazy amounts we're talking. So I think um, there's some things which, um, you know, you mentioned about the kind of health of the NHS. Money and paying for parking is one thing, but the hospitals and healthcare systems we see as paragons of improving people's health. But actually the number one thing we don't do is provide an adequate environment for patients and staff to get good sleep. Patients in hospital have terrible sleep because all the lights, the beeping, the noises, mm. the kind of doctors and nurses rushing around. It's terrible to sleep. When I was doing medicine instead of surgery, I used to do lots of ward rounds and, you know, in the night shifts going and seeing patients in the night. They would often say at 3 a.m., doctor, can you prescribe me a sleeping tablet because the patient next door is moaning or the lights keep going on and off and the beeper keeps going on and off. And actually, we're in this age, this kind of sleeplessness epidemic where the patients are not sleeping in the hospital. And obviously, we know now more and more data coming out that sleep affects everything in our lives yeah. from our heart health to our kidneys to our brains to dementia risk everything right so in the hospital we're not providing good sleep the staff often don't have good you know beds to sleep in at night time you're just awake for 12 hours and shift work that's a whole other can of worms where you're constantly switching your cycle and you're forcing your body to be awake when it's pitch dark and asleep when it's bright outside so the complete reverse of our normal biology so all of these things, it's terrible. I mean, um, sleep is actually, or, or actually being a healthcare worker, being a shift worker reduces your life expectancy. Yeah. You know, that, and that's a fact. Increases your cancer risk and everything like that. So, you know, I think uh, the jobs we do 
Okay, there's more to it than just going in nine to seven or nine to eight or doing shift work. You're actually giving life years to save other people's lives. Yeah, and you should be compensated for that or just given better resources. Isn't doesn't fluorescent lighting mess with your circadian rhythm? Uh, I think uh, there's more work needed to look at the different wavelengths of light and mm -hmm. the types of colors of light. But uh, I do know that, um, you know, red light at night, uh, kind of this infrared light that's yeah. actually beneficial to your sleep and your general biology and the kind of blue wavelengths of light is not good. Uh, kind of it will push your sleep clock forwards or backwards depending on the time of day that you looked at it fluorescent lights again it depends yeah what the specific wavelengths were at what time of day and actually even the the heights of the light for example if you're at night and you have to have some reading lights or whatever it's better for that to be below the kind of eye line rather than above the eye line where you're looking up uh, because depending on your the kind of angle of your eyeball it could trigger certain um, you know optical receptors that could trigger or delay the release of melatonin or mm. whatever that could which could disrupt your sleep oh i didn't know that on the infrared light stuff infrared light therapy and you know the the mask that you can mm. put on your face to yeah help, um encourage elastin and collagen does that actually work because i have one of those that i look i literally look like a android from the future with this like red. yeah i don't know if it, i don't know if it actually works i was actually i was actually going to make a video talking about the science-based skincare routine and that's one of the things i bought from amazon was one of those uh oh really yeah one of those things with the aim it was to debunk that mm -hmm. um it doesn't really do anything uh except make your wallet lighter um, I didn't get the expensive ones because some of them are like 200, 400. Oh, I yeah. I bought a 50 pound one. I got yeah. a 50 quid one as well. But I was reading up on it because I like to yeah, I like to experiment these things. Yeah, anti-aging, whatever. But some like it said, oh, some studies suggest blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, the thing is with research is you can always massage stats to your benefit. But mm -hmm. what I will say is if, you know, anyone wanted like the ultra. Uh, so I've never had any skincare routine up until a month ago. And I thought, you know what? Let me start a skincare routine because I've always been somewhat blessed in that I never really had crazy acne, nearly, never really had like crazy blemishes, whatever. And I always thought, wrongly that because i was you know had brown skin that i was immune to the sun's rays um <laughs> so i just went by and i and fine the skin was okay but i thought you know what i actually want to do some skincare why not and so i did some proper digging and the you know if anyone wants a science-based skincare routine you need a cleanser mm -hmm. you need a moisturizer you need daily sunscreen uh you know with at least 30 to 50 spf and if you really wanted on top of that the only anti-aging thing apart from sunscreen is retinoids uh but that yes. is a prescription thing as well mm. and you know the negative side of retinoids is that it can cause photopigmentation if you wear retinoids in the day mm -hmm. and you go out so it can cause these kind of dark splodges in your skin but that's the only anti-aging thing that we have those kind of four things should be the, the kind of all in and everything of your skincare routine apart from that everything else is just up to you do you want something to smell nice or do you want some gimmick to try it like you know snail slime or whatever all of these things are gimmicks those four things are the kind of core skincare science-based hacks that you can actually have what about those machines where they're kind of um like sculpting and massaging 
your face. Have you seen them? They just vibrate like slightly because I, I, I bought one of them. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, like, you know, your whole body, the kind of this hidden system of pipes in your body is called the lymphatic system. Yeah. And you have all this interstitial fluid and the kind of lymph fluid flowing around different parts of your body. If you have certain conditions where, you know, the lymph collects in certain parts of your body because of an abnormal flow of lymph, some massage may improve things temporarily, transiently, but there's no hard and fast science which shows that you can regularly you know vibrate your face to improve the appearance of your skin or anything like that lymphatic the lymph node mm. <laughs> the lymph node yeah. stuff um lymphatic drainage massages are they woo woo is it pseudoscience because i've had like a few <laughs> yeah I'm, i mean i think for the average person it's more hype than health. Yeah. But if you have specific conditions like elephantiasis, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some, you know, lymphedema because of deranged lymphatic drainage and things like that, part of the therapy for that is compression bandaging, massaging, like, you know, daily, weekly things for several weeks or months to actually massage the lymph uh, fluid back so it can drain uh, effectively. Mm -hmm. So in those disease states it's effective but for the average person no similar with probiotics if you're a healthy person no if you have inflammatory bowel disease maybe it can help i was going to ask about probiotics because i do buy they're these little like biomel uh, billions of live active yeah, yeah, cultures yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's the vegan ones these like because they're, they're chocolatey and they taste kind of nice and i get these and they're literally like one pound 40 each and i'm thinking yeah. uh, like i have been thinking Expensive. recently yeah they are tasty but should I just be eating some kimchi to help? Like, because kimchi has, doesn't have, does kimchi have probiotics? Yeah. Like, it's a fermented food, so. Kimchi is amazing. So. I love kimchi. Any fermented food, so, you know, pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, uh, miso, natto, whatever, you know, it provides a mix of probiotics, prebiotics, postbiotics, which are the breakdown products of the bacteria, what they can produce. Um, so, you know, short-chain fatty acids, things like that. But the thing with uh, these little probiotic supplements, powders, pills, or mm -hmm. shakes, or whatever you drink is, again, it's a lot of hype because mm. your microbiome, the gut bacteria, the genome for that, the trillions of bacteria and microbes in your body, all the kind of DNA and the genome they contain is far greater than our human genome. So we are more you know, microscopic invader than actual human. So who's yeah. the who's the invader? Are we invading the bacteria or are they invading us? Because they outweigh us. Mm -hmm. So it's, and they are, your microbiome is as unique or even more unique than your fingerprint, right? Mm -hmm. So how can you say that a one size fits all probiotic drink that you can buy off a shelf can be beneficial for everyone because mm. we're not at the stage scientifically to say that this drink will provide you with what you need. I think the future is, okay, your microbiome uh, makeup is this. We are going to give you a tailored probiotic supplement for your specific microbiome, which will help you with your arthritis, which will help you with you with your ulcerative colitis. So that is the future of medicine, tailored microbiome supplements for each person's individual genomic micro microbial makeup. We're not there yet. But if you have specific conditions which alter your gut microbiome, go into dysbiosis, so antibiotic-associated diarrhea, um, 
Clostridium difficile infection, inflammatory bowel diseases, colitis. So anything where the uh, microbiome diversity or population is affected, it's worth trying some probiotics. But even then, you don't need to buy supplements. You don't need to do that. You can literally just eat more fiber in your diet and just get a range of things. Uh, and that is far cheaper and healthier to get natural dietary sources than buying something that's processed with loads of sweetness over the counter. Yeah, because gut health and your gut microbiome is really important, mm. right? Um, doesn't the like science suggest that it aids everything from your immune system to just your body? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we are knowing more and more, we're learning more and more about the microbiome over the last sort of decade, we've our kind of knowledge of it has shot up and we're still just scratching the surface. 80% um, of your immune cells live in your gut. So all of these, you know, gut chemicals, gut hormones, which are released, interact with our brain via the kind of gut-brain axis, the vagus nerve and other neurotransmitters, and they influence our brain health, our brain health and information influences our gut health. And yeah, it influences our immune system, our mental health, our mood, our appetites, our skin. We have the microbiome everywhere in our body, from our genitals to our skin, to our hair, to our gut. And the more we learn about them, the more we'll probably be able to have specific medicine that's related to probiotics. Probiotic medicine and psychobiotics, so medicines for our mental health, is the future of where we're going. But at the moment, it's too difficult to say that a specific diet or a specific type of supplement can affect a certain thing. And that's where the pseudoscience is. Yeah. Someone will say, this probiotic will boost your brain power, boost this, boost that. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And alcohol, not to harp on about this, it, mm. you can use it to clean things because it kills bacteria, right? So when you're ingesting alcohol, isn't it the case that the bad bacteria and the good bacteria is getting destroyed in, in your gut or whatever. Maybe then you're more susceptible to falling ill, causing issues later down the line. You know, if you're like a, because when I talk about alcohol, I don't talk about people like, you know, my boyfriend, he's European. He has a very healthy attitude and relationship with alcohol. Yeah. Um, he can have like two drinks every four months. At, you know, yeah. I grew up being British. And in Britain, we're just a nation of heavy binge drinkers. So when I talk about this stuff, I'm thinking of the heavy binge drinkers going out to spoons on a Friday night and like drinking, I don't know, like 30 plus units and then <laughs> probably getting like a bag of cocaine in. Like that is a standard British thing to do, right? <laughs> these are the people that I grew up with, you know? So I, I, I'm worrying about these people, not the ones that have like a glass of wine every few. Yeah. You know. So I think... Um... Like as we as we suggested, you know, alcohol, it's it's not going to do anything positive for your body mm -hmm. or for your kind of gut microbiome. If the odd bit of alcohol, uh, you know, socially improves your mood, lowers your stress, great, because we know the impacts of stress uh, can be detrimental to your gut microbiome and other other parts of your body. So, if the odd bit of alcohol is something that you need to de-stress and just chill out and enjoy yourself whatever you know if you're going to be more stressed not drinking than you know than drinking do whatever you need to but know that it's not you know a beneficial factor in your diet mm -hmm. and also with regards to it impacting your gut microbiome it may well do because as we said alcohol is metabolized into acetaldehyde acetaldehyde is an inflammatory compound mm -hmm. Anything inflammatory can disrupt the balance, the gentle balance of your gut microbiome. That can be, you know, specific types of foods, 
uh, smoking, alcohol, all these things can and will disrupt your gut microbiome, whether it's, you know, in your intestines or other parts of your body. And I think the thing you mentioned about the relationship with alcohol and diet and things like that, that is probably one of the factors which sets Britain apart from our European counterparts. Mm -hmm. You know, in certain parts of Italy, Spain, I would argue they have a much healthier relationship with food and with alcohol. They can comfortably have a glass of wine with a well-balanced meal that's very plant-based and fiber-rich mm -hmm. and a with a modicum of meat. But the British diet, the average British diet, seems more meat-based, processed, heavy and alcohol-rich. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no one is saying you need to be meat free, but you need to maybe develop more uh, of a friendly relationship with your gut where you're actually prioritizing less processed foods or more plant-based foods where you make the plants the main attraction and you can have a bit of meat on the side instead of the meat being the main attraction and you have plants on the side. Because, you know, I, I often tell patients who come in with bowel-related conditions you know, try to limit your red meat intake to mo no more than 70 grams a day if you must, you know, and some people eat that in one sitting per day of red meat. Uh, so I think it's all about building those relationships. And anyone online who has very extreme views about things, whether it's, you know, diets or exercise regimes or anything like that, you have to take with a pinch of salt because yeah. everything in life is about moderation. I can go out and have, you know, a few donuts, does that make me have a bad diet? No, because, you know, it's part of enjoying myself. I can be uh, watching a football match and finish an entire box of Pringles because um, I want to watch the match. I want to have fun. But then the next day I'll go and have like, you know, loads of normal food. Or that same day I'd have had normal meals to accommodate me having Pringles. So you can still have a balanced lifestyle in moderation without having this kind of hermit lifestyle where you're teetotal, completely meat-free, gluten-free, everything-free, and fun-free as well. So I think everything's about moderation. I'm like two parts of that. Alcohol-free, uh, all animal-based products. Yeah, and that's fine as like well, on though. on paper, sometimes I think I just sound like the worst person. If you're having fun <laughs> with it, that is fine. Well, two trains of thought. First train of thought. You mentioned Pringles. Have you seen the guy on TikTok? The um, I don't know if he's a nutritionist or whatever. And even the term nutritionist, sometimes I think mm. even that needs to be taken with a pinch of salt because how much training do people get in nutrition? I know that doctors don't tend to get a lot of training in Not nutrition. Not a lot, no, yeah. No, but there's this guy, this nutritionist on TikTok, and he literally goes into the shops and he'll be like, this can of Pringles is the worst thing mm. you can eat in this aisle. It's going to kill you. Uh. Have you seen more people like that crop up where it is kind of... <laughs> yeah. It's a bit extreme because, like I said, you know, I'm vegan. Yeah, I had some chocolate today. It's not. It's not about yeah. being fun free. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think I know those people you're referring to who are <laughs> yeah, in these supermarkets and it's like, you know, Kayla's bullshit, or you know, stop using uh, these frying pans because they'll kill you, or you know, whatever. And I think again, we're in a society where we can't change everything so we're completely plastic free metal free you know all of these things we, we physically cannot do that and then also live a sustainable lifestyle a lot of these people who promote all these various things they have to take into account they have a significant amount of privilege yeah. to be able to do that mm -hmm. 
try telling that to someone who is a single mum looking after three kids who is literally skimming the surface of the poverty line mm -hmm. and who's working two jobs. For that person, a bag of frozen food that of frozen chicken nuggets that can feed her family for a week is more sustainable than buying organic, ultra expensive, whatever, yeah. you know, grass fed beef and this and that. So I think, you know, there's a certain amount of privilege which mm -hmm. comes with people saying, yeah, I'm gluten free, I'm this free, I'm dairy free, I want some oat milk with my latte, this and that. So, you know, take your privilege mm -hmm. and, you know, enjoy it and do whatever you need to do. But then when are you when you get on your soapbox and start preaching to other people and you don't know the circumstances and lives of the other people, it start getting a little bit awkward and a little bit disingenuous because not everyone can meet those standards because of their lifestyles, because of their social and financial circumstances. So, you know, again, I go back to this, harp, I harp on about, everything in moderation. Mm -hmm. The person who's feeding their family, you know, ultra processed chicken, frozen chicken nuggets every night or whatever, they know it's not a, arguably a healthy thing to do every night. And, the, you know, but it's, you're, sometimes your hands are tied by your uh, circumstances in life. And I think it doesn't help when you come at that from the point of view as, no, you can't do this, you must do this. Uh, I think there needs to be some sort of middle ground where you'd be like, can we look at ways where we can buy something which is more nutritious and is equally cheap? How can we do that? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's not an argument for content creators to make. That's a more of a national conversation to be had. Mm. How can we make sustainable changes where these more nutritious higher energy dense foods are more available to people rather than ultra processed foods that's a conversation to be had on a higher level than just a tiktok yeah i agree because good health shouldn't be inaccessible just because of exactly. someone's paycheck every month i remember actually when i first went vegan in my early 20s i think for the first year because i was broke broke london rent and you know i wasn't even on a london living wage which mm. i think is if not illegal than unethical um i was living off big beans and chips like frozen chips because i just for me i just didn't want to be part of animal suffering and yeah. that's always been my standpoint with it um i i've never been i, I don't trust the health freak ones i don't <laughs> trust the, the vegans who do it for the health i don't because they're just like one bad day away from being like i felt bad so i ate some salmon or i ate a steak you see it all the time i don't trust those the junky food ones like me you can you can trust us. We're in it for the right reasons. Um, but actually, what I want to ask you next, because I need to hear this. How bad is vaping actually for the body? I am, I think, one month vape free, like no nicotine, just got fed up, went cold turkey, like chucked them all in the bin. Um, how bad is vaping for your body? Because you get you get different perspectives on this because some people will say, oh, it's not as bad as smoking cigarettes, but that's a really low bar because cigarettes are just terrible yeah. for you. Yeah. You know, so how bad is vaping actually? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you think about it, you're inhaling heated chemicals. Yeah. Uh, in no sense is that a healthy thing to do. You know, inhaling various unregulated sometimes heated chemicals as vapors into your body our lungs are lined with these kind of uh, you know mucous membranes that are very sensitive to changes in humidity and temperature what chemicals go on to it and it's you know if all of these 
chemicals go into the lung lining, they can cause low-grade inflammation and chronic inflammation over time can lead to scarring, can lead to reduced lung function, can, you know, trigger the activation of certain cancer genes, all of these kind of things. And with vaping as well, there have been so many instances where there have been unregulated black market products mm. causing all sorts of you know lung disturbances in young people i think there was a case of uh, there was a young person who was smoking for or vaping for a period of time and he ended up needing a double lung transplant which is incredibly rare and not something which a lot of people survive uh, let alone have the opportunity to be able to receive I think, yes, you can argue in some senses, is it safer than smoking? But that's like saying, you know, you've got more chance of living, uh, you know, if you're stabbed with a knife rather than if you're shot with a bullet. Yeah. So it's not really a, a good comparison. Um, I think if you if you think of the mindset of I'm using vaping as a stepping stone to eventually wean off inhaling anything maybe that's an argument to be had you know would i rather someone vape than smoke maybe but the thing is a lot of these vaping companies are owned by tobacco companies mm -hmm. who have some affiliation with tobacco companies so it's still providing some value to these tobacco companies in some way just for the modern era and so it's almost become a gateway to other drugs if someone who wouldn't have smoked otherwise sees vaping and saying it's safer than smoking yeah. and they pick up vaping when actually in another reality, if, if vaping didn't exist, they would have never picked up anything. Vaping can lead potentially to many other things because if you go back to the very basic nature of vaping and smoking, it's an addiction and the addiction is not necessarily the smoking or vaping. The underlying addiction could be some sort of social anxiety or some need to have something in their mouth. Yeah. And actually, yeah, it's that vaping is providing a source of having something in the mouth. And then the next thing could be something more dangerous. And actually, I've seen cases, um, you know, within my family. So one of my uh, younger cousins has gone from vaping to smoking, which is not an, a very common thing, but it may be increasingly common when someone makes that jump the other way. So I don't think it's healthy at all. Um, so if anyone is vaping and also the weird thing about vaping is right. I see people vaping like when the moment they wake up, there are some people who won't just wake up and have a cigarette. They might, but it's not a common thing to do. Like they literally wake up, wake up in their bed smoking, but people literally wake up in their bed and vape. Yeah, back when I lived with one of my best mates um, and back when he was vaping, he would sometimes, I would hear him from his room. He would wake up in the middle of the night and vape and then fall asleep. And because you could, it was one of those proper, not the disposable ones, but yeah. the proper ones that you had to replace the cool and stuff. So you'd hear it like, and I just Crazy. think this is ridiculous. And, and, you know, for the, I don't know if someone could go from smoking and then vaping and quitting because I found that with cigarettes, I've had a very on-off relationship since the age of 14. Very on-off. Um, like sometimes I'd, I'd smoke a lot mm. and consistently, consistently. Sometimes I'd give up several months at a time. Sometimes it was just social smoking, especially because like I've had bouts of sobriety and now I actually mm. am proper sober. Sometimes when I'm at a social event, it's nice to have something, you know, just, just something, just yeah. like that one cigarette or whatever. Um, but then I found when I started vaping a bit socially, because it tastes better, I wouldn't go back to smoking cigarettes because they taste disgusting in comparison. And then it would go from smoking socially to vaping every day. 
and consistently throughout the day, way more than if you would have a cigarette. Because when you have a cigarette, it's quite a lot to take in. So you're satiated generally for several hours. But vaping, it's so easy. And these little disposable elf bars Mm. and stuff, they're so high nicotine. And I chucked it all in a month ago because it was becoming a daily occurrence. And I really think that it was messing with my sleep because my sleep isn't great. I have a lot of issues trying to get to sleep. When I'm asleep, it's usually fine. And I thought it was messing with that because of the nicotine withdrawal, because they're so strong. Yeah. And I think like, because they're they're nicely colored and they're kind of cool looking and they have all these different flavors, you're seeing more and more kids. Like that's the thing that they're going to now because it is tastier than normal cigarettes. Well, I think the thing is at the end of the day, if you're consistently inhaling things into your lungs, which is not air, that's not going to be healthy for you. I mean, our lungs are very fragile things. Um, there's a very limited number of things that we can consistently inhale without it doing long-term damage. And the thing is, when you inhale something, it gets into your bloodstream as well. So all of these chemicals, we don't know the long-term effects it has on other parts because once it gets into our bloodstream, it goes to our brain, crosses the blood-brain barrier to our brain, uh, you know, to other parts of the body, to the kidneys. We don't know the long-term impacts these may have in, I don't know, increasing rates of memory loss or deranging our focus or all sorts of things. We just don't have that data to say this is safe long-term or this is unsafe long-term. So in that uncertainty, why take the risk? And I think, I don't know, I, I would, it's something not something I would ever even recommend as an alternative to smoking. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of stresses... Uh, I heard I heard this recently. I don't know. I don't know who it was. Someone was in a podcast was talking about micro stresses. Mm. And for example, like we have lots of micro stresses throughout the day. For example, if you set an alarm clock on your phone in the mornings, but you wake up to the sound of it, you know, being shrill and you press snooze for 10 minutes each time you do that. Well, you're delaying the inevitable of just waking up in the first place, but also giving your body micro stresses because it's like a snooze jerk mm. jerk and it's and you're setting your day up badly because you've already started with a bunch of stress to your system what are other examples of micro stresses and how do we best deal with them i think in our modern day lifestyles it's inevitable you accumulate micro stresses throughout the day but it's just about how you regulate them for example just checking your emails and just seeing a work email that can that's a micro stress uh you're meeting up with a friend and you're delayed your train's delayed they're late, that can be a micro stress. Your phone is on low battery, that's a micro stress. Mm-hmm. We are surrounded, and that's due to our own making of this kind of trappings of society, that we're surrounding ourselves with a means to accumulating all these micro stresses. But I think, in terms of regulating them, um, I would say a lot of that, again, is having core habits which will be beneficial to us so making sure your sleep hygiene is good building in a period of time during the day where you're having to be disconnected with other things you don't have electronics you're not doing other things you're literally just sitting quiet in a room almost like a stillness a mindfulness or a meditation if you will where you're just with your own thoughts regulating your breathing breathe work that is something that i've started doing probably over the since the halfway through the pandemic where i really felt myself being burnt out and i started doing a lot more breathing control exercises i would say the modern average person has a higher breathing rate than we need every time we breathe in when we inhale our heart rate goes up every time we exhale our heart rate goes down 
we're breathing generally, like in the, kind of the average breathing rate for a human should be between 12 and 20. I would say a lot of people are breathing you know, more often than that. So if we regulate our breathing and try to slow down our breathing, we can slow down our heart rate and blood pressure. So that can actually reduce anxiety and improve our sleep habits as well, improve our sleep hygiene. But also things which we're not doing so much nowadays is just connecting with friends and family. Mm. It's having that social contact, maybe having a period of time where we're away from social media. And to do that, I would say so many people watching this are checking their phones, even during watching this every 30 seconds as a reflex. You can actually prevent that by building in these little interruptive gaps by just logging out of all your apps. If you're logged out of Instagram, if you're logged out of TikTok and YouTube, the chances that you'll check them are far less because you're providing more of a barrier to checking it because you're always logged in. You're always connected to these things. Another thing would be turning off notifications. If you're not notified, you're less likely to check. So, you know, your screen lights up with a WhatsApp message. You're, you're, focus goes onto there. Why not not have any notifications at all? So you only check it once an hour or once every two hours. I think that's how we begin to regulate these micro stresses. Do you remember like MSN messenger and how we'd say be right back? And oh, now none yeah. of us do because we're, we're always all just, we're all always, always logged in. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Oh, there's so many different, there's so many different lines of thought that I want to go down. Um, do you listen to Wim Hof at all? Because you're talking about breathing. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, listen, I think what Wim Hof uh, does and, you know, almost encouraging the use, uh, the, the in encouraging cold exposure, breathing, resilience, all these things are great things. Mm -hmm. I think we also need to take into account that these are not new concepts. No. These are ancient concepts which have been around in ancient India, like Ayurvedic concepts for millennia like thousands of years this have this has been modernized to a modern audience of wellness bros and biohackers who want to hear this kind of stuff um i think a lot of the stuff he talks about is rooted in science some stuff not so much uh for example cold exposure mm -hmm. It can improve resilience. It can help with certain things and provide some freshness to the start of the day. You know, I think if you're going to sleep and you want a good sleep, having a warm shower before you go to bed paradoxically cools your uh, core body temperature so you get a good sleep because you need a lower core body temperature before going to sleep. It lowers the sleep threshold. Um, and conversely, if you have a cold shower in the morning, that will make you more alert because it will raise your body temperature. So, and throughout the day, we want a raised body temperature to be more alert. So it fits in with our circadian cues. But then I've heard some claims, very outlandish claims that cold exposure can uh, reduce the risk of cancer in humans, can f boost your immune system. All these things are unproven. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a line to be drawn between very far-fetched claims and the tangible claims as to what it can do. Um, and again, there's also this personal anecdotal thing where someone does 30, cold uh, showers for 30 days and they feel amazing. Great. If cold showers is really making such a big difference in your life, keep going at it, regardless of the science. Because if you're telling me you're doing cold showers every day and you feel great, regardless of what the science says... That doesn't matter. The science doesn't matter because you feel great. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that element, the personal anecdote. If someone feels great, fantastic. Keep doing whatever makes you feel great. But also, if you're going to say this is good because it does this, this and this, 
make sure this, this, and this is rooted in science and not just some clickbait thing that you can do to sell a course or sell a camp or something, you know? What are your thoughts on intermittent fasting? Um, I think it's another way to promote a calorie deficit. If someone is promoting intermittent fasting because it's going to improve certain aspects of their life or it's better than this diet or that diet, again, there's so many different camps of dieters. Some people will swear by keto diet. Some people will swear by intermittent fasting or carnivore diet or whatever. You know, there's pros and cons for various sort of things. And a lot of people say intermittent fasting is great because it restricts the amount of time where you can eat, time-restricted feeding, and so you'll lose weight. But there's no magic as to why people can lose weight with intermittent fasting. Is because if you skip certain meals, you'll eat less and you'll lose more weight. One of the things which I will say about intermittent fasting and just periods of fasting in general is that it will benefit some degree your gut microbiome mm -hmm. because I think giving your gut microbiome some sort of rest can be beneficial in some studies. Not saying that that is the best way. There are other ways to improve your gut microbiome, but you know, some a small period of fasting can improve that. But you can also get that by just by having an overnight sleep where you're not eating. So that also does a similar sort of thing. You're going back to your social media success quickly. I'm aware that we're running out of time. Have you had, is there any conflict of interest between being a social media, uh, I want to say personality, but a social media source of, you know, medical edutainment mm. and your job? Have you had any anything, any negativity from colleagues or co-workers. I only asked this because years ago when I worked at a bar in the city in like Liverpool Street, so near the city of London, I'd have, you'd, you'd have the finance city boy bros come in and they were fine to talk to. And I would talk to them about things like, you know, radio or podcasts or whatever. And the narrative back then at the time seemed to be they wouldn't get into now you do see financial people on youtube but at the time they were saying that they wouldn't do anything like that because it is a conflict of interest mm. have you found anything like that i mean because you've been there for 10 years like i'm assuming the narrative has changed somewhat and the reaction to this yeah i mean listen there'll always be people who like what you do and don't like what you do i think you can't please everyone and I'm not there to make friends or please people. I'm there just to provide a service. And that service is free knowledge. Uh, that's what I do. And I just enjoy it. I enjoy debunking things. I prov enjoy providing a source of entertainment and education. And the conflict of interest would come about if I were to do something which would completely go against the grain of what it means to be a doctor. I mean, there are lots of doctors on there who have significant conflicts of interest. They will promote all sorts of dodgy diets, dodgy mm -hmm. products, which actually, if you looked into the science, that is really, really poor form. Um, and without naming names, there's tons of these kind of doctors in the UK itself who are well-known online, who are doing these kind of really crazy things. So I think if I promoted some sort of keto diet website, mm -hmm. I think that would be a conflict of interest because there's no science that shows that the keto diet is, you know, beneficial for any particular person unless you have, you know, rare type of seizure disorders or epilepsy um, in childhood. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, there's no significant thing to say, yes, the keto diet is medically approved. Um, so if I did something which was against, because end of the day, 
I spoke about having to restrict when I signed up to be a doctor. I restrict a lot of things which I can and can't do. Mm-hmm. The plus side of that is being a doctor, it gives you a level of credibility and trust that not a lot of other professions can provide you. For better or for worse, people will trust what I say. And to not abuse that trust, I need to maintain a certain level of respect and decorum in what I do and also make sure I research my facts. So again, if I started then talking about the gut microbiome and saying that probiotics are useless and then started doing an advert for probiotic companies, that would be ridiculous. So that would be a conflict of interest. I'm directly conflicting what I'm previously stating. So things like that, I need to be very careful. And I, I would feel guilty if I ever did anything like that as well. Sure. And just to end on top tips for uh, for maintaining a healthy lifestyle, reducing micro stresses, this type of thing. What can you tell our audience? I think the number one thing is I would say is uh, just make sure you're sleeping well. And sleeping well doesn't, it's not just one night, it's several nights. When I first started as a junior doctor in my first year, I struggled with insomnia because I was taking home work with me. It was stressful, I was disorganized. And the one thing I found, and so I, I really tried everything and nothing worked. And the one thing I found was something called paradoxical intention. If I tell someone, don't think about a pink elephant, first thing you do is think about a pink elephant. So using that same reverse psychology, when you're just lying in pitch darkness, your eyes open and you're telling yourself, I will stay awake, I will stay awake. There's significant evidence which shows that can actually encourage sleep. Uh, so I would say focus on sleep as one of your main things to improve at. See it as a skill to get better at. Mm-hmm. That you know, see it as a superpower you're trying to improve on. Uh, and actually, you'll see so many different areas of your life improve. Like my physical and mental health improved once I improved my sleep. My relationship with my friends and family improved. My organization improved. I was less cranky. All of these things just got better because of that one thing. Um, so I would say you know making sure you prioritize sleep and 30 grams of fiber a day is non-negotiable 30 grams how do you how do you incorporate more fiber so for example an apple a handful of nuts and a banana is already over 10 grams of fiber oh really yeah okay what about what about bran flakes are they any good Uh, yeah, uh, but you could all, they, they're good. Uh, you could also throw in a couple of slices of bread. That's another, you know, five or six grams. Uh, baked beans on top of that. That's another probably about seven grams. Okay. So already in those few things, you're almost hitting 20 grams of fiber. Beans on toast. Yeah, 100%. So sleep better, eat more beans on toast. <laughs> yes. If anyone can take away anything from this podcast, I hope it's that. Thank you so much for coming down and coming on to this. I actually... I don't think I even did half of the topics that I went to. I vastly overestimated how long an hour is because of my ADHD, obviously. So I'd love for you to come back sometime so Definitely. we can go over the rest of the topics that I had in mind. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, socials, where can people find you? Uh, on YouTube, Dr. Curran, TikTok, Dr. Curran as well, and Dr. Curran Rajan on Instagram. And Facebook. And Facebook as well, <laughs> Dr. Curran as well. Yes, so, and for us... Well, thank you so much for listening or watching. Make sure that you follow us on what we on Spotify and iTunes and YouTube. Leave a like, dislike, comment for the engagement. Do all that stuff. Thank you so much. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. See ya. 